you can see that so coming from Central Asia through s- Central Russia, this raises all kinds of questions about what are people seeing and who are they meeting? And is that the Hajj becomes an event where Muslims are for the first time in history really mixing a lot and encountering non-Muslims along the way? Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. I'm pleased to welcome Eileen Kane to the podcast to talk about the history of the Russian Hajj and the attempts by the imperial government to manage Muslim pilgrimage in the late 19th century. Eileen Kane is an associate professor of history at Connecticut College, where she specializes in empires, migrations, religion, and historical connections between the Russian and Ottoman empires. She is the author of Russian Hajj, Empire and the Pilgrimage to Mecca. Here's Eileen Kane. According to the 1897 census, the Imperial Russia had about 20 million Muslims, the largest religious confession after Orthodoxy. But why don't we start by having you talk about the diversity of that Muslim population and their status as subjects in the empire? Russia gets this large Muslim population through expansion over centuries. So starting in the 15th century, they're expanding through the end of the 19th century and bringing in all kinds of different peoples, including Muslims. This starts in the 15th century, pushing eastward into what are former Mongol lands, and then to the south, Russia expands largely at Ottoman and Persian expense. So this is a community, you can call it a a community, but it's internally diverse. Muslims live all over the empire, concentrated in certain areas to the east of Moscow and south in Crimea, north of the Black Sea, the Caucasus, and Central Asia, but in overall in 89 different provinces of the empire. There are Sunnis and Shiites. The majority are Sunnis, but you also have Shiites in the South Caucasus and in Central Asia and what is today Tajikistan. And they speak many different languages, so Turkic languages, Indo-European languages, and Semitic languages. So a very large population, but also internally diverse and not you know spread out all over the empire. And then this question about their status as subjects. There's a shift in the in the late 18th century. Catherine the Great issues an edict of toleration. So generally speaking, after the late 18th century, there is an official toleration of Islam, which means that there are, again, generally speaking, no attempts to forcibly convert Muslims to orthodoxy. And the state is is interested in regulating how they practice their faith. So there's toleration, but there's also attempts to monitor and regular regulate the kind of Islam that they're practicing. Mm-hmm. And that's through the creation of, of imperial structures to have, say, like I, I'm thinking of the bit I know about Robert Cruz's work in the sense of local institutions. There's kind of some local autonomy in terms of regulating and managing local Muslim populations and faith, but there's a imperial structure that goes up to the Tsar that uh, deals with, uh, say, Muslim affairs. Exactly. And these are created in the late 18th century and then expanded over the 19th century. Now, in the last 20 years or so, scholarly interest in, in Russia's Muslim populations has increased. And, and I'm just curious if you can kind of, if you can give a bit of an outline of what kind of questions are historians grappling with? And, and where do you place your study of the Hajj 
into that general body of work about the Russian Empire and its people? So I think in the last year, there was something of four or five books that came out on Muslim communities and Islam in Russia. So this is, as you say, something that scholars have increasingly been paying attention to since the Soviet collapse, especially recently, we've seen a number of books. And I would say generally, the approach is the biggest question, the main question that scholars are thinking about and, and trying to answer is how did the state try to manage and govern these very large Muslim populations? I would say that my book is different in, in two senses. One is that for the most part, other books focus on the domestic. So that is how this played out within the borders of the empire. Um, and the other thing is the focus has been mainly on, you mentioned Bob Cruz's book, which was a wonderful book that came out several years ago that looks at these institutions that the state created to try to regulate Islam and integrate Muslims into the empire. So the focus has been largely on, so far, on this, on these institutions that the state created and how it how it tried to get Muslims to to adhere to them and plug into them and participate in them. Right. So it's more of the kind of questions about force and consent and integration and, like you said, governance into the empire itself. Yeah. And the idea that there, there are these new institutions, and I should say, and Bob Cruz covers this in, in his book very nicely, it's not just for Islam. They do this also for for other tolerated faiths in the empire. But so this, so this focus, so, so other books have focused on the domestic and also on these new institutions that the state created. And two things that, that I do differently is one is I reframe this question of how the state tried to manage its Muslim communities in cross-border perspective, because I'm writing about what is the focus of the book is the Hajj, the Muslim pilgrimage to Mecca. And this is, of course, a cross-border migratory phenomenon. So one of the things that I argue in reconstructing their efforts to sponsor the Hajj and, and create this infrastructure along Hajj routes is that the this project of governing Muslims and integrating Muslims was not limited to within the borders of the empire. This is, you know, the 19th century is a period of increased mobility with the so-called mobility revolution. So people are moving around more, but also unique to Islam, there is this pilgrimage that is not optional, but obligatory. And because you have increased access to possibility for long distance movement, more Muslims start making it after the mid 19th century when you get railroads and steamships. So, so one thing I do differently is this, this sort of reframing of the question of, of managing Islam in, in cross-border perspective. And then the other is I'm looking at this, the Hajj, which is of course a, a Muslim and Islamic institution, an Islamic tradition. So in, in, in the case that I'm looking at, the state is actually trying, it's not creating a new institution. It's trying to co-opt and, and influence and, and sort of plug itself into this Islamic institution rather than creating a new one. So these two things are not mutually exclusive. They're, they're happening in parallel. Why don't we talk a bit about the Hajj itself and, and how Muslims traveled from Russia to Mecca in the early 19th century before the Russians begin to try to institutionalize it? So, as I mentioned, it's a, the Hajj is one of the five pillars of Islam, so it's uh, required. It's a duty for Muslims throughout history. Muslims, and, and still today, Muslims don't necessarily always do it because it can be very expensive. It's also, depending on how far away you are, it could be impossible to make. But in the 19th century, it becomes more central to Islam 
again, because of the increased possibilities for movement, not just in Russia, but around the world. So before you get railroads and steamships and increased access to Mecca for Muslims earlier in the 19th century. There, I should say there's not much at all that's been written about this, but you do find there are a lot of Hajj memoirs increasingly after the mid-19th century, but there are some from earlier that are good sources on this that, that really haven't been looked at much. So on foot, people would go, they would take, there was one source I had from late 18th or I think it was the early 19th century, the Black Sea was important. So you would have uh, this source talked about how Muslims would come from as far away as the Balkans and China and sort of meet at the Black Sea and then set sail from Crimea and go you know, through the Bosphorus and down through the Mediterranean and then overland to Mecca. So this was obviously a, it was much harder to predict how long it would take and fewer people made this journey because it required long time, uh, unpredictable amounts of time away from home, which most people couldn't afford. It required a lot of resources to, to get there and back. And, you know, as far as we know, that the numbers were much smaller. They start to get much larger um, around the, the mid-19th century and onward. Why did the imperial Russian imperial government uh, become a patron of the Hajj beginning in the 1840s? What interest did they have in doing and trying to establish some – to streamline, I think you call it, streamline this this journey from, say, Muslims from Russia to, to Mecca? I should say – that the this goal of streamlining was something that they came to very gradually and eventually. So this and this is a, a really interesting question for me because the story I start in the book in in the 1840s and this was I had gone into the archives looking for information about Orthodox Christian pilgrimage and started to find all this stuff about the Hajj. Um, Russia in the late 1830s, in 1839, opened a new consulate in Beirut in what was then the Ottoman Syria and Palestine as part of this, you know, the great powers moving into this, this part of the Ottoman Empire ostensibly to protect Christian populations and to sort of stake their claims to this part of the empire that they were imagining might fall away from from Ottoman rule. So they were all kind of competing for influence there. And what and of course at the same time this other event was going on that we don't usually think of or historians don't usually treat in relation to that which was the ongoing conquest of the Caucasus. So what I saw in these in these documents from the Beirut consulate starting there was that Russian officials start seeing Hajj pilgrims come through. Um, they would come in through Beirut, which was is a port, of course, and then go overland to many went to Jerusalem on the way to to Mecca, and then by land down um, to Mecca and sometimes Medina also. So these officials, I saw this in Beirut, and then there was another that was the Russian consul, a guy named Konstantin Basili, starts writing to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and saying there are all these Muslims who are coming through, and this this is kind of interesting, this is an opportunity for us. And then in the 1840s, there was this guy named Chirikov, who was a military officer sent to help set the new border between Persia and what was Ottoman Iraq. And he's sending back similar reports saying there are thousands of Muslims coming from the Caucasus on their way to Mecca. And what these, these two officials both were saying is they both saw potential in this in this traffic. And they said, 
these people are asking for our help because they have lots of needs on the way. They need our help because the security situation is, is bad. Many are getting robbed. They're fearing for their lives. They need, they need our help. They're coming from regions of the Russian empire that we're trying to, that we're in the process of trying to conquer and where we're also trying to co-opt Muslim elites. And there's, there's sort of reasoning that, well, if these people are going on the Hajj, they must be people of means. They themselves must be elites. And also they're going to places outside the empire where we have an interest in, you know, as I say, sort of establishing a presence and staking a claim. So this sort of very gradually from these ground level encounters with individual people, they, these reports, you know, are being sent back to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and this plan starts to, to develop in the 1840s and they start saying, okay, well, let's start sponsoring small numbers of people. And let's try to, and the French are doing this also and. In Africa, David Robinson has written about this in a book called Paths of Accommodation, where they say, well, let's try to, this is a way to ingratiate ourselves with Muslim populations. Let's sort of, they call it selective sponsorship of elites. So, so it's, so this was really interesting to me that it sort of start, it's not this grand plan dreamed up in St. Petersburg. It's not this sort of abstract idea that, oh, we know that this traffic is going on. No, it's these, these guys on the ground as Russia's opening new consulates across the border that start seeing these numbers and start thinking that there's potential in this. Yeah, you even have a you open one of your chapters with a case where Muslim pilgrims are are appealing to officials, particularly I forget what consulate it was, but there was one case where this group was was robbed by Bedouins and they lost everything and this they appealed to a Russian official and the official went kind of bend over backwards to solve this problem for these people. So I I found it interesting too that this comes out of also Muslim most of which are elites, but Muslims asserting themselves as subjects of the empire that affords them, I don't know if the word is rights, but certain privileges. Yes, that is right. And um, this was really the first case, the one that I start with in chapter one that I came upon and I, and I thought about for a long time. And then as I went to other archives, I went to Tbilisi and then to Odessa, sort of picking up the, the pieces of this story and sort of reconstructing the roots and the officials involved in sponsoring the Hajj, this this story, other pieces of this story came, I found pieces of it in these other archives. And, and this is very important, is that often these Muslims who are showing up at the consulates, and of course, many are not, so we don't know how many are going, and it's a self-selecting group of people. And usually when they come, it's because they've been robbed, or they've run out of money, or so it's when they're in need. Um, but they do, they are, in this particular case, they were certainly informed of what their rights were, and they asserted these rights and reminded the consul, consul of the, this was in Beirut, the Beirut consul, that, you know, it's your job to protect all subjects of the czar. So, you know, this shows a certain resourcefulness on their part, and we're very flattering to saying, you know, we're so grateful to the czar. So this was very interesting to me that, and these people had been brought under Russian rule, like, you know, two minutes ago. So this is... A sort of resourcefulness, negotiating what or what is what are some of the rights that come with this new relationship we have, having been colonized um, or in the process of being colonized by Russia. By the latter half of the 19th century, the the Hajj itself is taking on uh, new forms in the sense that now there are new modes and more rapid modes of transportation. The steamship and the railroad is being the main form, and these tend to supplant the long journeys of walking. So these journeys can actually be shorter, a matter of months rather than a year. And the Russian government is a is an attempt to 
to get a handle on this, start to develop an infrastructure. And I found this quite interesting because you, you point out that they, they point, they develop permanent routes. They have quarantine zones and they do disinfection at ports. They, they, there's the development of a pilgrim travel economy. There's advertising among other things. Talk about this infrastructure and how it transformed the Hajj. One of the most interesting things about it is that it, it changes the journey for for Muslims who are getting to Mecca, I'm thinking in particular about Muslims coming from Central Asia. So with the construction of railroads into Central Asia after, so Russia conquered Central Asia in the late 19th century and built railroads, of course, with the intention of, this is a, a you know, a colonial situation. So the idea is to, you know, railroads will help speed troops in if you need them and also extract resources. And Muslims, start using these Muslims who are making the Hajj start seeing these railroads in a, a new route. So um, they spontaneously start taking the railroads. This is something that I want to emphasize. It's not like Russia set up this infrastructure and then Muslims flocked to it. It was they also were always kind of had to adapt it as as Muslims were changing their routes and were always trying to figure out, well, why, you know, which way are people going and and let's try to to establish our railroad railroad through there. And let's also try to attract everyone to this one route. So it was very tricky. It was never 100% successful. And also, I should say the word infrastructure was not just a word that that I applied to it. There's a an official in the late 19th century, early 20th century, who I think I start off either the introduction or the it's early on in, in chapter one, where he calls it, this is a, a, you know, kind of a full-blown infrastructure that we've created. So, you know, coming from Central Asia, you asked about how the journey changes. So rather than, you know, before there were railroads, Muslims from Central, some of them would have gone by foot through across the Caucasus and gotten to the Black Sea, but many more would have gone southward through Afghanistan and then down through British India and then gone by ship across the Indian Ocean. So now with railroads, you can get from Tashkent to Odessa in as few as eight and a half days, uh, which is really fast. But also that if, and I've spent a lot of time creating from state reports on routes and also Muslim, the Hajj memoirs that Muslims had written, the, the routes. So there are a lot of maps in the book and you, you can see that so coming from Central Asia through s- Central Russia, this raises all kinds of questions about what are people seeing and who are they meeting? And Niall Green at UCLA um, has written about this too, that one of the things that happens in the colonial era, because not just Russia, but all the colonial powers are involved in the Hajj, because most Muslims in the world are under colonial rule, is that the Hajj becomes an event where Muslims are for the first time in history, really mixing a lot and encountering non-Muslims along the way. So that I would say is, is really one of the big changes. The other is that the trip for, you know, today we think of the Hajj people for the most part, certainly from the United States are taking airplanes to go. So they go from, uh, you know, Chicago and then they land. I think Jeddah is, is where the airport where they many land. So that's a, you know, sort of A to B itinerary and. Throughout history, before the modern, the era of modern transportation, it was really uh, many Muslims followed a multi-site itinerary. So I mentioned Jerusalem. There were holy sites there that many would visit, Damascus, Istanbul. So, uh, and this is something the Russian government, they, they want them to go from home straight to 
to Jeddah and then to the holy sites and then back home. They really don't want them stopping along the way. So there's tension about this. They have to kind of adapt because Muslims aren't going to take the railroads and steamships. It's mainly a steamship thing because the sites are abroad for the most part. So there's some resistance to this attempt to streamline and it takes Russian, many Russian officials a while to figure this out. They think, well, don't they just want to go there as fast as they can and directly as they can? And that's not, that's often not the case. Right, right. It's kind of a, a grand tour of sorts. <laughs> well, yeah, and often it was, this is the one time in your life you're, you're going to travel long distance. So you, you are going to go and visit many sites along the way. And let me ask you about the, the, you, you mentioned this in the book and you, you've mentioned it a couple of times so far in our discussion, uh, the travel memoirs. And, and it made me think of this again too, when you spoke about, you know, along the way in these routes, Muslims would interact with, say, other, you know, populations within the empire, and then also populations outside the empire. Talk a bit about these memoirs. What did people write about? How did they describe their journey? What sense did they make of the things they encountered? Well, first of all, these memoirs were often, for the most part, they were written not as sort of exciting, you know, adventure. You know, I went here and I went there and I saw these amazing things. They were written more as kind of textual maps and memoirs that counts of how to get there that others could then use as a guide. So they were kind of, kind of guidebooks. Kind of like uh, the Hajj Lonely Planet. Yes, exactly. So really how to guides. And so, you know, when I first read a few, I found them deadly boring because they would be, well, you know, it's this many chakurum from this train station to this train station. And, but, you know, I mentioned before these maps that I, that I provide in the book, they were wonderfully rich sources on geographic data. So on the sources that people took, because they were explaining, this is how you get there, because this is the first time ever you can get from Kazan to Mecca by railroad and steamship, and here's how. So they would include information, lots of information on routes, and then things like, you know, the mullah in Odessa is a crook, and he will rip you off, so you should try to avoid him. He's trying to sell steamship tickets to all, you know, so advice on who to avoid, food not to eat when you were in, there was a certain kind of meat that everybody was getting sick from in Yanbu because the lamb ate certain leaves from certain trees and this was making everyone sick. So things sort of practical, practical advice. Um, and yes, the Lonely Planet analogy, I think is a good one. And how, how were they distributed? Like if you write, if you're a, one of these people and you write one of these guidebooks, how do people get to read it? Like, how do you distribute it? Once you have Muslim newspapers starting in the late 19th century, some of the ones that I read were published in Turkistan Vilayetinin Gazete, which was the main newspaper in Tashkent. There were other newspapers in other parts of the empire where memoirs or accounts of making the Hajj would be published. Many were in manuscript form. And I would say also that, you know, you asked about what, what would people write about the, you know, one, another thing that comes to mind is Abdul Rashid Ibrahim, who's one of the most well-known Tatar intellectuals from the late 19th, early 20th century. He wrote a memoir. He traveled around the world, including making the Hajj in 1908, I think to 1909. And he was standing on the quay in Odessa and he saw a ship come in and he was outraged by what he saw because he saw on the same ship, steamship pulls in and you see Orthodox Christian pilgrims returning from Jerusalem and Hajj pilgrims returning from Mecca. And many of them had also visited Jerusalem. But he said the, the Orthodox, you see all these sloppy 
Orthodox Christian pilgrims getting off the ship. They're dirty. They're they're on the same ship and they're allowed to stroll through Odessa right off the ship and into the city, whereas the Hajj pilgrims are being shepherded over to the disinfection facility on the outskirts of town. So one thing that, that some of them wrote about was they're noticing this these two different policies and standards being applied to people who are basically going more or less to the same part of the world. So, and this is one of the, I would say, the downsides of streamlining the traffic along one route is that one of the unintended consequences is people start to see how differently these two populations are being treated. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is kind of one of the things I was I was trying to get at is, is how people in their interactions started to notice differences. And I think your example of the disinfection uh, is, is a good one. Now, the 1905 revolution is another major turning point for the imperial government's effort to manage the Hajj. Uh, what, what changes and innovations did officials make in their attempts at management? Uh, I guess the, the big one is in 1908, they decide, uh, they, I should say, Stalipin, who is the prime minister and also the minister of interior, decides to appoint a Hajj leader for the empire. And I write about this in, in chapter four in the book, and he has this... he. This is not, he probably knew that, that Britain had tried to do this in India. They actually hired Thomas Cook, the travel company, to organize the Hajj in all of India. And this, of course, failed in the, in the late 19th century. Um, so this is a, an attempt to do the same thing, but with a Muslim leader. And he chooses, it's sort of this classic situation of a colonial subject presenting himself to colonial officials and they just love him because he he looks like someone they can work with. They chose a merchant from Central Asia. He came to them but and actually presented his case to Muslim deputies in the Duma and then to the prime minister to Stalipin himself. But he was a the son of a trusted intermediary, one of the the elites that were created by by colonial elites that the Russians created when they conquered Central Asia. He spoke excellent Russian and dressed in the Western way. And he, he told them what they wanted to hear, which was if, if you put a Muslim in charge of the Hajj, all of the problems that exist in the empire, people missing their trains, people not ending up in Odessa with, with no money and living on the streets and people getting sick. There were loads and loads of problems as with any kind of mass movement, especially involving lots of people who've never left home before and who can't speak any language except their native language and are traveling through many different parts of the empire and then the world. So it's a it's a problem. And so in 1908, Stalipin says, we're going to appoint this Hajj leader and he's going to get the Hajj in, in to bring it under control and, and organize it for the empire. And there's this backlash Again, I mentioned Muslim newspapers. A lot of people start writing in the newspapers about how awful he's treating Muslims. And as it turns out, he's also not someone that many of them trust because he looks like he's working on behalf of the state, which he is. So this doesn't, they abandon this idea after a year and actually Stalipin says, well, I never actually, this was, I was misunderstood. I didn't really mean to appoint a leader. Even though, you know, he has to start explaining this to governors throughout the empire because he sent out something throughout the empire saying all of you must cooperate with this one person. But so this is an attempt to organize something that that is very kind of unruly and unpredictable. And but and, you know, and, and it's sort of an attempt to say, well, we're supporting Islam and showing respect for for Muslims, but it, it doesn't work out the way they hope. 
The Hajj itself, at least the government effort to manage the Hajj, collapses during World War One and with the revolution. But the Soviets revive it in the late 1920s for a short period of time. Talk a bit about the Soviet efforts to basically do similar things in terms of management and how it differed from in the imperial methods. Yeah, so this was kind of a surprise for me. I thought that the the story would kind of peter out with, in World War One and with the revolution. Then I found all this stuff in the Odessa archives about this brief Soviet experiment. So I would say on the, on the face of it, it, the Soviet brief experiment with sponsoring the Hajj looked very much like the, the czarist era one. They, they, they actually, you know, referred to, it had only been a, a decade or so before that the, the czarist regime had been, they start this in 1927, I think it is, start talking about it in 26. But so they know, and many of them remember that the czarist regime used to do this. And they, they say, okay, well, what were the old routes? And this, the steamships are basically the same steamships. They just have a new coat of paint and they're not called Jerusalem. They're called Lenin or Communist. And so that's the same railroads for the most part, same steamships. So on the face of it, it looks kind of like the same thing, but they're, it's, it's very different, I would say, in three respects. One is that the, target the the people that they're trying to transport and make money off of and influence are foreign Muslims. So Muslims outside the Soviet Union, they actually say this is not for Muslims within the Soviet Union. This is only for foreigners. And and it actually gets started because it's it's Persian Muslims who start writing to the Soviet government and saying, okay, the war's over. It's been over for a while. We want to go to Mecca. Can't we take our old route? So it's pressure from these foreign Muslims. They, they kind of give them the idea. So one is that the target is foreign Muslims, not domestic. Two is it's it's not about obviously integrating domestic Muslim populations as it was in the in the Tsarist period, but influencing foreign these foreign Muslims. So one of the things they say is, you know, this is actually we need hard currency to industrialize, so these people will pay, so that's good. But also, you know, is if you have Afghans who come in through Central Asia, this is great. If we could have a guy just take them before they get on the train to go to the Black Sea and then on to Mecca, if we could just take them on a little side tour and show them a Soviet factory and show them a Soviet collective farm, a you know, they're hoping that, that this is kind of by coming through the Soviet Union, we can influence them and they can take back these marvelous impressions they have of this new experiment. Now, let, me, let me interrupt you for a second, because this is actually an interesting parallel with Michael David Fox has done for this type of travel from the West. Exactly. So they're doing the same kind of touring, parading, showing the achievements of the Soviet system. But that's really interesting that they have a same idea from people coming from, say, the East. <laughs> yes. Yes. So exactly. And I, okay, I use Michael's book in, in this, this last chapter. We know more about this, this, this Western story of targeting people in the West to bring them in to see this, this wonderful new place, this, this experiment, this Soviet Union that's being created. And so this is the Eastern part of the story. So the third thing was that made this, the Soviet experiment different from the Tsarist one is that they actually embraced this idea of Mecca as a center of conspiratorial anti-imperial scheming. So in the Tsarist period, there, there was always this concern, Mecca is closed today and has been throughout history. It's off limits to non-Muslims. So this sort of fed this idea that we have these Muslims who are making this pilgrimage, this long distance pilgrimage, and 
we don't really know where they're going and what they're doing. And as if that weren't bad enough, they also go to this place where we can't enter. So in the, in the imperial period, there was always this fear that never quite panned out. You know, there never was a great anti-colonial revolt plotted in Mecca, but this was always a fear. So the Soviets take this prejudice or stereotype or fear about Mecca and they actually like it. They say, well, we're hoping this is true because if, if let's 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 get more of these Muslims from Afghanistan and um, northern China and Persia and let's help them get to Mecca because then maybe they'll go home and they'll overthrow their colonial governments or their bourgeois governments. So so that's the another difference, big difference between the Soviet experiment and their goals and and how they were different from what the Tsar's regime was trying to do. Now the Russian Federation, as we all know, also has a very large Muslim population, and in the context of the Russian state concern about Muslim migration and, of course, Islamic militancy and issues in the, in Chechnya and Dagestan. What, what's the Hajj like for Muslims within the Russian Federation after the collapse of the Soviet Union? The evidence so far suggests that, that Putin is doing something similar to what the imperial government did. And I should say that, that the Hajj has once again become a European concern, a European, you could say, event because of the growing in Western Europe because of immigration. You have large and growing Muslim populations. And then in Russia, these public populations have always been there. So, so, you know, the British government, the French government, the German government and the Russian government today are all involved to some extent in the Hajj because their citizens are going. And I would say so in 2007, there was an article in the New York Times about how Putin had introduced subsidies and support for the Hajj. I think he had created, oh, that was the year he had gone to the Saudi government to lobby to get every country has the Saudi government, their quotas on how many pilgrims each country can send because this is an attempt to keep the numbers under control. So Putin in 2007 successfully got the Saudi government to increase the quota for Russia, which was seen as, you know, an attempt to support and show support for Russia's Muslim populations and their their growing interest post-Soviet, their their ability to go on the Hajj in the post-Soviet period and their interest in this. There were, there were state agencies created to support the Hajj under Putin and subsidies, for example, on Aeroflot, so subsidized flights during Hajj season. I would say that, so that's the evidence I've been able to find so far. I would say that this is is not written about very much. I think it's an interesting story that for whatever reason, journalists haven't really covered much in the last several years. And it may be, again, that the that Putin, like the czarist regime was, you know, he, he's not always, it, it's tricky because he may not always be very public about the kind of support that he's giving to the Hajj. And finally, the, the bigger story of, of your book concerns the relationship between empire, its uh, internal and external infrastructures, imperial space, and the relationship to migration. How would you evaluate Russia's attempts over this long period that you've covered to manage the Hajj as an, a project of imperial statecraft? I guess the, the most striking thing to me is that this, as I've said, this, they, they want to organize and streamline and control the Hajj. They don't actually succeed in, in doing this, um, completely, which shouldn't be a huge surprise. It's never really possible to completely control a migratory movement. But what, what strikes me is, is just how ambitious this 
project was, how creative many of the official the officials involved in it were, and they're thinking about how to entice and lure pilgrims to particular routes, their optimism about what the rewards might be for, for doing this. So in other words, there were many reasons why officials didn't like the Hajj. You know, it, it created like any kind of mass migration moving through a place. It created disorder. It created, you know, disease they feared. And sometimes, you know, this did happen, of course. It's, it, it helped facilitate the spread of infectious disease. So there were many reasons to, to not like it, but there was so much optimism among the officials that I read, whose, whose correspondence I read for this book about, okay, Yes, there are these downsides, but it also gives us an outlet, a reason for expanding into other parts of the world. And if this is really a great opportunity to prove our support for, for Islam to our Muslim populations. And I would say it also brought together people, many Russian officials of, of different viewpoints. So conservatives and those who would consider themselves liberals who, who thought this was a matter of civil rights for Muslims that you would support them in making this, this important journey that was fundamental to their faith. So I'm just thinking sort of stereotype, this uh, older stereotype about late imperial Russia is that everything is going wrong and nothing is going right and this thing is, is doomed to collapse. And of course it does. And this is, you know, right until the end, there's, there's, there's these very hopeful voices about, you know, this is a good thing we're doing. And ultimately this may also help us push into expand even further our borders and ingratiate ourselves with Islam, whatever that was, um, you know, but meaning all these Muslim countries to the south of our borders. That was Eileen Kane, an associate professor of history at Connecticut College and author of Russian Hajj, Empire and the Pilgrimage to Mecca. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review on iTunes, or recommend the show to your friends. You can find past shows on iTunes, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org. I've also started a weekly email newsletter, the SRB Weekly Dispatch, which rewinds the news week in Russia. You can subscribe to it at seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Like we the therapist, adrenaline, fifth mic.